Motorsports Analytics Podcast. I'm Alan Cavana, joined as always by David Smith. On this episode, we welcome back a familiar voice and name to discuss the top 50 prospects in NASCAR, also known as Prospectapalooza. It's a list that's already making people mad. That plus our big Daytona road course preview. But first, as always, this is episode 91 of Positive Regression. This is the Jocko Flacco edition. David, this was a late audible because really it's the Tim Flock edition, right? He was the driver <laughs> of the number 91 car. He was the two-time champion of the series. He was the driver in the first ever NASCAR race in Charlotte. And while we talk, we will talk about his accolades, we're really here to talk about the monkey, David, Jocko. <laughs> It's inevitable. We had we had to we had to do this. We had to pull this audible. So, uh, okay, let's let's just backtrack. There was a point in the early 1950s in which this was legal, and it, it somehow happened for eight races. But uh, there's a wonderful article about this on a website called Our State, and that is a North Carolina-centric website. I'll post the link to it in the show notes. But the author Jimmy Tomlin discussed. The, uh, the history of Jocko Flacco, a living, breathing monkey who rode passenger with Tim Flock in 1953. So let's hit the highlights of this, uh, Alan. <laughs> Coming off of a championship winning season in 1952, car owner Ted Chester saw to it to drum up some marketing interest. I, you'd think a championship would be enough. Turns out not so much. He saw a monkey in a pet store in Atlanta early in 1953, and his wheels got turning. He got the idea to bring Jocko. That was already his name, and he thought that it was closely uh, associated with the name Flock, so Jocko Flocko was christened. He told Tim about this, and Tim Flock said, Ted, you're crazy. NASCAR will never allow this. To which Chester replied, NASCAR won't know about it. First of all, that's the first mistake, right? Because Tim should have said, hey, I'm not comfortable with a live monkey in a race car. That should have been, <laughs> that should have been the direction, but he left that door open. Anyway, so they did it and Jocko got uh, a little fire suit and a helmet and goggles and his own seat inside the number 91 Hudson Hornet. I'm sure it was adorable, but it was wild. Uh, it, it, he was in, he was strapped in. His first race was on the Charlotte dirt track. And sure enough, right out of the gate, no one knew a monkey was in there until Tim was passing cars. And he believed that Jocko supplied an advantage as Tim Flock tried to pass other cars. The sight of a monkey on the passenger side staring at other drivers broke their concentration. And uh, naturally, it took one race for NASCAR to be tipped off that there was a small primate passenger on board because that's... You, you go grab Big Bill France and say, hey, the 91's got a monkey in it. And that that's the, kind of the end of that. To my dismay, NASCAR was kind of cool with it, and he lasted seven more races. Alan, on paper, the time in which Jocko Flacco was in the seat next to Tim Flock was incredibly productive. From the time of the debut to an incident that we're going to talk about in Raleigh, North Carolina, Tim Flock amassed an estimated peer of 4.375 with a monkey in his car. Oh, yes. He crushed with consistency six finishes 
of six or better, including a win during that span, the win coming at Hickory, but the incident, the, the, the straw that broke the camel's back, we believe Jocko attacked Tim during a race at <laughs> rally, which is, of course, unfortunate. Uh, it really soured everyone on not just monkeys as ride-along companions, but all passengers, really, because we haven't had that in NASCAR since then. Alan, this could have been groundbreaking. It was not. It was a failure in the sense that it ended exactly the way everyone thought that it probably would. Um, I, I guess not so much a failure considering we're talking about it and Jocko served his purpose. It drummed up interesting PR, um, but that was the end of Jocko Flacco. Tim, by the way, went on uh, a few years later to join Carl Kaikoffer's juggernaut program, and we're going to give him maybe his due, I guess, episode 300, because that was the number of the car that he won 18 races and 39 starts in 1955 and route to that championship. But yeah, we'd be remiss if we just didn't talk about Jocko because uh it's too weird. It's too amazing. It seems too good to be true, but I promise you it is. Yeah, just the fact that it was associated with such a, a good driver, a champion driver, that, that it wasn't just a publicity stunt, or that you mentioned, that being champion wasn't big enough. Like, you would think this would be a, some some gimmick for someone to just enter a race and say, I'm the monkey driver. No, he was the champion driver, and he's still the guy with the monkey, right? It, it kind of overshadows the Tim Flock on the track. It does. It'd be like if, you know, after Joey Logano's championship, Roger Penske just, you know, threw a monkey in the car and said, I don't think the championship thing is enough. I think we've, we've really got to accentuate what we got going on here. I it's have a crazy. I can't, I can't believe this happened. I mean, I, I honestly can't, but it's maybe my favorite footnote in all of NASCAR history, just because of, you know, the absurdity of it all. Absolutely. If you put that in a movie like Talladega Nights, again, you laugh at it, right? The Panther or whatever it was in that. I mean, you think that's, that's hilarious and hilariously stupid for a movie, but no, it actually happened in terms of a monkey in a race car. Uh, I have a piece of trivia for you, David. Okay. Uh, I'm a Connecticut guy and one time, uh, Mr. Flock raced up at Thompson Speedway in October of 1951, Thompson Speedway in Connecticut. He finished seventh that day. Do you want to guess who finished 13th that day? Your grandfather. My grandfather, George Cavana, cup racer. The only stock car race he ever drove was in a race with Tim Flock, also Herb Thomas. But Tim Flock, yes, finished seventh. My grandfather finished 13th that day. And a small piece of familial trivia, which is very cool for me to say, especially for episode 91, the Tim Flock addiction. Yeah. Oh my gosh. This was such a heartwarming end to this story. I thought we were just going to be laughing it up about monkeys, but you, man, you, you brought it all full circle. Oh, that was wonderful. Nice. Good touch. stuff. It's not all about monkeys. It goes back my family history as well. <laughs> Episode 91 of positive regression, the Tim Flock slash Jocko Flacco edition. All right, let's get it started, David, because we have a guest on this week's episode. We would like to welcome back Chris Mitchell to Positive Regression. You've heard him on here before. Chris is a pro scouting analyst for the Minnesota Twins. He also dabbles in NASCAR and was kind enough to rank NASCAR's top 50 prospects for motorsportsanalytics.com. Chris, quickly, let me just say welcome back to Positive Regression. How are you? I'm doing well. Glad to be here. 
Yeah, good stuff. And it's fun to have you on because, look, everybody loves lists, right? Everybody loves talking prospects and the future, and everyone's got a different kind of methodology and way of making their lists, even between you and David Smith, right? You have different ways of looking at potential prospects in the future. So when we're reading your list up there on motorsportsanalytics.com of the top 50 prospects, what is your model? How do you go about looking at these young drivers and who could potentially flourish one day? How do you go about it? Yeah, so the primary driver behind my list is um, my prospect model that I've built over the last few years. And it is a stats-based model that attempts to predict each driver's peak cup series peer um, by the age of 30. So it's focused only on what a driver will do in the cup series, not necessarily concerned with uh, what they might do in the lower levels. But the factors considered are age, performance in races, races run, peer, um, and the level of competition that the driver uh, mostly recently raced at. So someone in Xfinity is handled a little bit differently than someone who is down in the ARCA East ranks, for example. The model, it's not perfect by any stretch, but it is objective, and that makes it a useful tool for identifying overlooked talent. You know, the drivers who are doing good things but are maybe much younger than their competition or maybe are in lesser equipment and therefore not filling up win column or sometimes even the top tens column. And David, this is how I know you are secure because you are not afraid to invite other people to your website, motorsportsanalytics.com, and offer their take on future prospects. Uh, what is it about Chris's methodology that you indul- that you like? Well, for starters, he really, he, he really truly cares about the way in which prospects develop over time. And his philosophy is true in the sense that he seems to be asking the right questions. There should be more of an emphasis on age. And I know there's maybe one or two drivers we're going to talk about that specific category uh, around. But he understands that. And while there isn't enough talk in the broader industry, Chris brings that into his model. Um, It's a model that I find fascinating uh, makes me secure in handing him the keys to the, uh, the top 50 list this year. And I think he just did uh, a home run job to use a baseball term, uh, in his honor, but it, it was, it was a fantastic list. It was thorough. And more importantly, uh, it makes sure that we're not really losing any driver in the cracks here. I mean, that's, that's the hardest thing to do when evaluating prospects is to make sure that these gems, these diamonds in the rough, we, we don't, we, we don't lose them. Um, because that is hard. That is very easy to do, especially at the highest levels of auto racing. Uh, so I'm glad that we're turning over every stone here. All right. Good stuff. Well, let, let's get to it, Chris, because the number one prospect on your list for, uh, for eventually cup series, uh, success, I guess is how we can put it. You have young Sam Mayer. Sam Mayer in the truck series right now. Uh, what I know about Sam Mayer is that in a playoff race for the truck series last year, Chris, in Bristol, I was there in victory lane with a young 17-year-old in a playoff race, defeating all sorts of talent uh, in the truck series at Bristol. And there I am with Sam Mayer in victory lane, getting the checkered flag. Why is Sam Mayer number one prospect for your NASCAR list? What do you see in him? Yeah, so Sam Mayer is a pretty special talent. And I would say that of anyone on this list, he probably has the best shot of becoming a cup superstar, meaning someone who puts up peers north of three on a year-in, year-out basis, and which would translate to a lot of race wins. Mayer 
he straight up dominated the Arca ranks. Um, he wanted a pretty unprecedented clip the last couple of years. And by the metric of peer, he's actually outperformed the likes of Kyle Larson and William Byron when they were at that level. And on top of that, as you mentioned, he's won a truck race. So he's very good right now. And of course, he's still just 17. So he has a lot of years to continue to get better. And that's kind of crazy to think about given all that he's already accomplished. So, you know, given a couple of years in the Xfinity ranks and a couple more years after that to kind of get situated in the Cup Series, it's pretty easy to envision him um, growing to the level where he's competing for wins and championships. And as you said, um, I mean, age plays a big factor into this. And he's still 17, which means there are tracks he cannot race at quite yet. So I'll pose this question to both of you. And David, you can go first. But what should we expect from him then in 2021? Certainly more experience uh, in, in the truck series and different tracks, but not quite uh, the level that he wants to be at, obviously, due to age. So what can we expect from Sam Mayer in 2021? Sam was one of the requested driver capsules on motorsportsanalytics.com during the offseason. And his spider chart, I mean, if you haven't seen it, go go to it and and look at it. Of of the the more pertinent stats, he was very nearly perfect. Among drivers aged 18 to 20, and mind you, he was 17, so I just threw him in with his group. He ranked in the 99th percentile in peer surplus passing and crash avoidance, which is actually pretty wild. He only crashed once in 23 starts. Uh, that is a Harvickian number, if I can, if I can coin that phrase. Uh, his restarts were fine. Uh, 62nd and 50th percentiles for non-preferred groove and preferred groove restarts. Once he improves there, it's over. And he goes from <laughs> simply being the top prospect right now to maybe the top prospect of a generation. We, we might need to be having that conversation. And as far as this year goes, the junior motorsports car that he's getting into, we've seen what Taylor Moyer has done in supplying fast cars for just a bevy of drivers with different driving styles. And I don't see this with Sam Mayer uh, being any kind of exception. Fast cars, few mistakes. I think we'll see Sam Mayer in Xfinity Series victory lane this year. And I I know you're going to hear other analysts sort of hesitate to make that prediction. I don't even believe it's a stretch, to be honest. Okay. He, he is that good. And in a fast car, uh, yeah, we can see some fireworks from him this season. Chris, he's not even 18 until June, so limited opportunities until then. But for 2021 as a whole, I mean, once he gets those opportunities, what do you expect out of him? Yeah, I mean, I agree with David that I wouldn't be shocked to see him in victory lane as soon as this year. Um, I think it's worth noting that dominating the Arca series is a lot different than dominating in the Xfinity series. Um, it's just a whole different ball game. So I wouldn't be surprised to see him have some growing pains especially kind of right out of the gate in those first few races, um, especially looking at what he did in the truck series. He did have that win, but he was also a little bit inconsistent at times in those few races. But, I mean, I think watching him this season, we're going to be able to see him start to blossom. And even if he does have some some rough starts out the gate, I think by the end of the season, we'll see him competing for top fives on a regular basis, if not in victory lane. 
All right, number one, Sam Mayer on the list of top 50 prospects in NASCAR. We'll jump around a little bit because you had what I guess what you considered a surprise or is surprising to you at number 10 is Derek Krause. Why is that a surprise? Yeah, I mean, Derek Krause, he was a rookie in the truck series last year, and he was kind of overshadowed by a lot of the other talent in the series. You know, he wasn't a factor in most races, didn't even qualify for the playoffs, and he was kind of I felt like he was kind of overlooked. So at first glance, I was a little surprised to see his name um, so high up on the list. Uh, but a bit of a closer look, that reveals that he was actually pretty competitive, especially given his equipment. Um, his peer was eighth among full-time drivers, which that's impressive in its own right, but it's extremely impressive coming from an 18-year-old rookie. You know, For reference, Cole Custer, Tyler Reddick, they both fell short of that mark as 18-year-olds in the truck series. So even though Krause's first foray into the truck series was maybe a little underwhelming, it still bodes very well for his future, given just how young he is and the things that he did do well. Uh, and if he's able to build on that in the next couple of seasons and get to the point where he's regularly competing for wins in the truck series and maybe even the championship, then he could easily shoot up this list and be number two or number three uh, in the next couple of years. And I think that would put him on the short list for a top cup ride. Yeah, and it was fun to watch his his progress last year in the truck series. And remember, he was one one corner basically away on a restart coming off a two at Darlington from uh on that restart from a playoff spot. So he nearly had it. So I mean, it, it was close and given the equipment and everything, uh he, he was close last year in the cup in the truck series. Yeah, he he fills the spider chart actually. He, 99th percentile for preferred groove restart retention, 85th percentile for peer, 77th percentile for surplus passing, uh, no percentile ranked below 67. And what that led to was that Bill McAnally team. That team was housed in North Carolina. And the Bill McAnally racing that we know, the, the West Series powerhouse with all its bells and whistles, that's based in California. So for all intents and purposes, this was a completely different team. Uh, with shared branding. And you mentioned that, that bid for the playoff spot. Consider this was a relatively slow race team, 16th in central speed among series regulars. And just, I mean, trying for points contention for a playoff spot, only 10 teams made the playoffs. So the fact that they were in contention in the first place, uh, is signal enough that they very likely overachieved. And Derek Krause was the reason why. All right, Derek Krause at 10 in the truck series, which makes this next one a little odd. That's why we talk about it here on Positive Regression. Uh, Chris, truck series champion Sheldon Creed ranks 17th. Again, this is the top 50 prospects for NASCAR, ultimately trying to gauge what their success will be at the cup level before the age of 30. And on that list, Sheldon Creed comes in at 17th. Why is that? Yeah, so I think most fans know who Sheldon Creed is. The defending champion won five races last year. And Regular listeners are, have probably heard you guys talk about his restarting prowess in the past. But there are a few reasons why the model is not crazy about him. The biggest factor would be his age. And I, I'm not going to say that 23 is old by any stretch, but uh, by the standards of NASCAR prospects in 2021, it's not exactly young either, especially for someone who's not yet in the Xfinity series. Uh, now, part of that has to do with Creed's kind of unusual path that he's taken to the truck series that has included off-road racing and stadium super trucks. So 
he's not exactly uh, he's not exactly new to racing on asphalt, so it's arguably unfair to compare his age to some of the other drivers on this list. Um, and that's why I have him higher on the final list than where the model would have him. But even so, uh, there are a lot of guys who were similar to him who are a few years younger than him in the truck series. And age aside, you know, there are some weaknesses in his profile that I think are maybe overshadowed by last season's hardware. You know, he wasn't the most dominant driver in the series. Austin Hill uh, outperformed him in both pier and average finish. And if you kind of look past, past the win column, guys like Brent Enfinger, Brett Moffat, Matt Crafton, Ben Rhodes, Zane Smith, they're all, he wasn't head and shoulders above any of those guys. And for him to really get on a cup series trajectory, I feel he, he does need to kind of stand out in the truck series. And given his age, he kind of starts to do that, has to start doing that in the next year or two. That's good stuff. And David, I was going to ask, I think of a driver like Chase Briscoe. Again, 23 is not old, but you know, say 25, a 26 year old cup rookie, uh, that, that's getting toward the older side for a rookie. For Sheldon Creed to be on that trajectory, what, what does he have to improve? You know, everything that Chris said was spot on. I did find it peculiar that Sheldon Creed elected to return to the truck series, and that's not just a problem with him. That's a problem when drivers tend to do this. They achieve the big goal. In Sheldon's case, it was the truck series title, and then return to that series. And of course, there are other stats that could improve. He could have won 17 more races and gone perfect. His top 15 efficiency was indeed out of whack. But at the same time, the series was conquered. And it's time to take on a new challenge. Improving to become more comfortable in the truck series isn't anything I really understand. Uh, we, we as a people learn most under distress and discomfort, and that's probably what he needs to make himself sharper for what I can assume is his end game, which is the NASCAR Cup series, where, by the way, the rules change all the time. So all, all of the, everything that seasoned cup drivers are going through right now is persistent change. So uh, another year to stick with the same team and the same series against the same competition for maybe a little bit of a better stat line. I, I am with Chris. I think there was a missed opportunity here. Move up, test your metal a little bit more, take some lumps. But ultimately, the end result is to shape yourself as a better Cup Series driver. I think that was a missed opportunity. Hmm, interesting. Uh, let me throw a quick one at you, a little off script here, but because she has a lot of attention, uh, for good reason, Haley Deegan, uh, she is number 22 on the top 50 list ahead of drivers like Austin Hill, like Brandon Jones, who have both seen success already at the levels that they are. Just, uh, Chris, given the attention and the sponsorship and opportunities that will likely come Haley Deegan's way as she climbs and only uh, improves, you would think, what do you see in her abilities to, you know, have success at the cup level and why is she 22 out of 50? Yeah, so Haley Deegan, she has shown encouraging results in, in the ARCA ranks last season. You know, she wasn't on the same level as guys like, uh, say, Chandler Smith or Ty Gibbs, but she was competitive in her own right. Um, she posted a peer of 1.775, which is certainly respectable, and it's a very large improvement over uh, the clip she posted in 2019. Um, 
So being able to do that as an 18-year-old is impressive. But the reason she's not higher, I guess, is because she wasn't really at the top of the pure leaderboard there, whereas there are a lot of other drivers ahead of her. But, you know, as you say, advancing to the truck series, she'll get another opportunity to show her stuff. And, you know, if she comes out and performs well, I, I could see her shooting up the list uh, this time next year. David, there are certainly drivers that, that have a struggle or, or a weakness, but what comes of opportunity by having, you know, sponsorship, right? Sponsorship means opportunity, and that means more races that some other prospects aren't necessarily going to get. What can Haley Deegan do with that to Im- improve herself? Given that, you know, with sponsorship and attention, she will get opportunities. I mean, I think you just said it. It's the races that she is getting. So let's let's keep in mind two things. Prospects 10 years ago were allowed to test literally anywhere for as much as they could afford. Now, that's not true. And if we want to double down and say that this is going to be another year of limited practice and no qualifying in a national series, that's going to be pretty tough for her. She's going to a lot of tracks that she's never seen before in a vehicle that she's never driven before. That was a topic this week during uh, her media availability. She said that she has been regularly in uh, Ford Racing's simulator. Uh, David Reagan, who oversees the Ford development program, has not missed a single Haley Deegan session. So they've been working closely with one another. And Mark Rushbrook, uh, uh, overseeing Ford Racing, said that her path is going to be something that's probably duplicated over the wider Ford Racing program. If you'll recall, a few, uh, a few years ago, they began putting their young drivers in road racing cars. Chase Briscoe came to mind. Haley Deegan, uh, got in one of those cars last year, uh, during Rolex 24 weekend for one of the, uh, preliminary series. You're going to start to see more of that, and they've got some other uh, potential stars in the pipeline. I'm thinking of Taylor Gray, certainly very high on Chris's list, um, but we're going to see what has been something that I would call a cross-training protocol uh, within Ford Racing. I think that they are doing it very well, and I think that this is the supplement that this generation of drivers in a no-testing, seldom-practice version of NASCAR are experiencing. And that's how they're going to thrive over drivers that just simply are not going to racetracks. Any kind of experience is a monumental advantage at this point. All right. Uh, we've talked about number one on the list, Sam Mayer. We talked about the defending truck series champion, Sheldon Creed. Let's talk about the defending ARCA champion, Brett Holmes, because uh, Chris, you revealed your list, you tweeted about your list, and Mr. Holmes saw it. Let me bring up the tweet here. Where is it? You tweeted out how there were six drivers from the top 50 in the ARCA race over at, uh, what, Daytona last week, and Mr. Holmes, the champion, comes in at 34. Mr. Brett Holmes saw this and wrote, appreciate the low ranking, just adding fuel to the fire for me. So defend yourself, Chris. What did you think when you saw that uh, Brett Holmes saw your list and saw the ranking? Yeah, I always love a good Twitter beef. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, first of all, uh, I'll say that I I understand where he's coming from. You know, from his perspective, he's coming off of an ARCA championship. He's worked really hard to get where he is, and then he just sees some guy on the internet tweeting that he's maybe not all that great. 
So I would, I would be pretty ticked off too, I guess, if I were in his shoes. Um, but I think it's important to reiterate the goal of the exercise here, which is to identify likely cup series producers. And Brett Holmes, he's a talented race car driver as evidenced by his ARCA title, but for him to make it to the cup series, let alone succeed there, uh, a lot would need to go right at this point. I mean, for one, his 2.119 peer last season ranked 12th among qualifying drivers in the ARCA ranks. So, wow. I didn't know 12th qualified. The <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so as, although he won the championship, that kind of obscures the fact that he was outshined by several drivers who did not run the full schedule. Guys like Sam Mayer, Ty Gibbs, Taylor Gray, Corey Heim, and all those guys are teenagers. And, and Holmes, he'll be 24 this season, which, as we talked about before, that's getting a little up there by prospect standards. So he, he would need to make some pretty atypical improvements to put himself in the conversation for a cup ride. Um, I'm not saying it's impossible. You know, if he goes out this year and really turns some heads in the truck series, maybe you can envision a scenario where he gets on that trajectory. And that's why his name is on the list, because it's, you know, it's not outside the realm of possibility. But at this point, given what we've seen so far from Brett Holmes, you have to squint pretty hard to see him lining up to be in a good cup ride. And David, that's why we do these lists and why you guys are so smart and why people listen to this podcast, because you have to look beyond the hardware sometimes, correct? What do you what do you want to chime in with about Brett Holmes, who <laughs> won a championship in his own right, but yeah. you know there uh, there are metrics there when you look a little deeper. Yeah, I mean we can start with the easy stuff. William Byron and Cole Custer are younger than he is and are already in the Cup Series. Uh, among drivers aged twenty four years on Chris's list. Ben Rhodes, Brandon Jones, and Dylan Bassett are the only three that are ranked higher than Brett Holmes. Uh, ben and Brandon, of course, are winners at uh, in high-level national divisions. Dylan Bassett, chronic overachiever in whatever he gets in. Uh, usually it's a, a backmarker car. And, and then there's Brett. And respectfully, I don't know that he fully realizes or appreciates the abundance of talent among drivers younger than he is. And I'm with Chris. I respect his plight doing what he's doing on a modest budget, but he's in year six of ARCA and he's won one race in 82 starts. Uh, and frankly, I think Chris extended him more courtesy than he would get from uh, an OEM or a cup team decision maker. I mean, when it, when it comes down to this, what's the underlying question? What does it take to land on a cup series team's radar? It, you know, Chris said it takes something atypical. Yeah. If he's not bringing a checkbook, then it would require a near unprecedented string of wins in big races against stacked recognizable competition. In essence, he has to make it obvious performance that no one can ignore. And the alternative to that is very difficult, but it would be hopefully he stumbles into a team that pays attention to underlying metrics. That's not unprecedented. That's how front row identified John Hunter Nemechek. But Brett Holmes isn't in a series right now that's fully stocked with consistent good data. And in that sense, he's not exactly helping himself 
uh, or these decision makers by being an ARCA as long as he's been. So it's, it's going to take a, a pretty radical change for his family team moving up in a series, uh, and then having, you know, Chase Briscoe levels of success in one year to, to get the ball moving. All right. Good stuff. A good discussion. Prospect of Palooza for 2021. Again, you can see the whole list, the top 50 by Chris Mitchell. The top 50 prospects is on motorsportsanalytics.com. I encourage you to go and read that. Chris, thank you for joining us once again. Always interesting stuff. And, uh, all, as far as I know, you've only made one person mad, but we'll, we'll keep a tally just in case. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Enjoyed the discussion. Thank you, Chris. Great stuff from Chris Mitchell, as always. Uh, he, he likes to look, you know, way down into the future. David, now it's time to look toward our more immediate future. It is time for the race preview. The cup cars are still in Daytona, but this weekend they are racing the Daytona road course. And, and David, we don't always get to say we, we've seen this track quite yet this year, but we have because this is where the Bush Clash was run on the infield at Daytona International Speedway. Uh, so, I don't know how much we can look back and learn from that, you know, an exhibition race in terms of looking forward to an actual points paying race. There's probably a difference between, I think, what we saw and what we learned. You know, what, what did we see in the Bush Clash? We saw a different engine and rules package. We saw a different tire. I think that led to some different decisions when it came to pitting, right? Different strategies. It led to potentially drivers chasing down faster cars in front of them, you know, as tires wore out, all that stuff. But that's what we saw. What did we learn in the Bush Clash? Oh, I think we learned that teams learned a lot about the high horsepower, low downforce combo. Uh, the review of it is they all liked it. So that's a, that's a start. And I thought it was actually a, a very entertaining event. Uh, we saw brakes get absolutely toasted in this race. And when that happens, Alan, tire wear is affected. Every force that affects the car is felt by the tires. So when the brakes are smashed like that, tires are just worn. And the best drivers in recent road course races are Chase Elliott and Martin Truex. It comes as no shock when I look at some of the throttle tracing that was accumulated uh, over the last few years. I see that they're also the drivers who most efficiently use the brakes. And when you use brakes efficiently, you pass cars efficiently. Truex and Elliott rank first and second, respectively, in surplus passing value across the last two years on road courses. And and that and that's it. That kind of does it for you. You can't have a slow car, but the beauty of road course racing is that driver input matters so, so much. And this is a big stadium road course, not unlike the Roval, but not totally similar. Those straightaways are begging for horsepower, but this race will see a finishing order decided in the corners. And for that reason, I'm really excited for Sunday's race. I, we're just going to see extraordinary passing and the drivers able to pull that off 
go straight to the front. Yeah, and, and obviously in the Bush Clash, it's the bigger teams already, right? The contenders. But you just wonder who can make the most adjustments or who who learn the most. I mean, we know teams have data and everything, but what can they do with it? Can anyone make a leap from what they did in the Bush Clash? I think that'll be an interesting question to answer just to see who can who can turn around what they learned, right, and, and improve on it in just a few weeks. That That, that should be interesting. Less than two weeks, right? Because, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and they you, were busy in between. <laughs> yeah, that would, that would have been a, a thrash to to figure out. Uh, I think back to what Martin Truex was able to do. What uh, an amazing performance! What a sight to behold! And his car was just beaten up by the time that he was out of this race. That's sort of what it took. It wasn't. It wasn't. As much of a finesse race as Sonoma and Watkins Glen typically are at high levels, this was a beating and banging kind of race. This is designed for a NASCAR crowd. Uh, I think it lived up to the billing. We see a field, uh, a full field of this, uh, this Sunday. Um, could be interesting. I've got one contrarian performer, I think, that's, uh, usually in the back, but might find himself in the middle and doing some things. So I'm, I'm curious to see how that goes. Yeah, we will get to that. And I just think a true X, remember, he made a, a just a, a dumb mistake, right? He went straight, uh, uh, instead of doing the bus stop while under caution and lost the lead because of it. So at least they had the bush glass to figure that out because you don't want him doing that on Sunday, right? If you're a true X fan. So I bet he doesn't make that mistake again. Uh, now, now with points on the line, David, and obviously we're in the season and when you're thinking about long term and trying to make the playoff and there are stage points, there are still stages at these road courses that award stage points. But in terms of strategy, you know, some teams will go after stage points while others will have the benefit of strategizing for a victory. What do you think that deciding factor is aiming for stage points instead of the outright win? Where's the balance there? That's a good question. And I mean, that's going to be a question that you know, fantasy players and, and betters are going to be asking as well. Uh, I, I think if you're fast enough and good enough, you can compete for both. Chase Elliott proved that in last year's Daytona road course race. Martin Truex and James Small learned it the hard way, really. But it's true. If you can get through the field and you don't need to pit in advance of a stage break so as to inherit track position at the beginning of a stage – then by all means, go for it. Uh, it's inter- more entertaining for us anyway. But Alan, I think self-awareness really matters here. I've always said this. Talk to 10 crew chiefs after each race. They'll all tell you they had top five cars and you know at least half of them are full of shit. Uh, two years ago, William Byron won the pole at Sonoma. He led the race early. But Chad Knauss, self-aware took notice of Byron's speed relative to those around him in clean air uh, and noticed that he wasn't driving away from the pack. And he realized that they very likely did not have winning speed that day. He turned out to be correct. It was a JGR field day, if I recall. But their strategy shifted from compete for the win to maximize stage performance. William Byron finished 19th in the race, but scored the fifth most points. If it's unrealistic that you're going to win and, and you, and you probably do need some kind of self-awareness because William Byron had a really good car and there are going to be a lot of fast cars, but maybe not those with elite speed. 
If you're not unrealistic about it, then go ahead, try and maximize your points day because that's what is going to be the most likely take home that you can control. And I wonder if any of this gets more interesting because Michael McDowell won. There's already a playoff spot taken, like a surprise one, right? And so does, are the gears already turning in terms of teams that may be the borderline ones? Is it Hail Mary for a win now, even in the second race of the year, or is it collect those stage points? Is that the Hail Mary? You know what I mean? Is, is punting on the win that, that is the chances of that are far greater than if you get a fifth place in a stage or maybe a second or what have you. I wonder if the game has already changed because one less spot is now available in the playoff. Yeah. I think that's probably depending on your stature, right? If you're, let's say it's a Joe Gibbs racing car. If your driver is Kyle Busch or Denny Hamlin or Martin Truex, you can probably do what you were just planning on doing anyway, right? But Christopher Bell is interesting, I think, because that team missed the playoffs last year with Eric Jones driving, and I think it's a fringe contender at best. Michael McDowell's Daytona 500 win was a direct threat to their playoff contendership. I I mean, absolutely. So if you're in his situation, maybe, maybe it isn't a road course for him. Maybe it's the dirt race. Maybe they need to go all in at Bristol, but they might have to cherry pick a few events where they say, okay, listen, we are, we are today is about locking into the playoffs and they go for it. And I think you're going to have those kinds of conversations within every organization because there's going to be a top tier driver and there's going to be someone that's on the fringes. So what you bring up, yeah, McDowell's went through a wrench and a lot of plans, which is fascinating. I, I, there's going to be some hard decisions. I can't wait to evaluate those decisions when we see them uh, and see how they play out. And all of that could begin this Sunday on the Daytona road course. All right, let's make some win picks this weekend. Uh, mine is incredibly boring. I apologize, David, but uh, uh, like I, like last week, until Denny Hamlin gets beat, I'm not picking against him in the Daytona 500. Until Chase Elliott gets beat at a road course, I'm not going to pick against him. And David, for the obvious reasons of just how well he does on the stat line, but for everything you brought up about his passing numbers and just how methodical. Remember, he had to go to the back in the Bush clash. And, and at no point was there, in my head at least, a belief that that he wouldn't be at the front at some point or certainly be a contender. He's just too good. He's too smooth. And we know he has the fastest car, at least, you know, last year. They had the speed that you obviously need to win races. But his ability to make it through the field on a road course was just outshining everything. So he's just too methodical for me not to pick him as the winner this weekend. Okay, I'll pick him too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Boring. <laughs> um, no, no, listen. Um, say what you will about the finish of the Bush Clash. Chase Elliott was not only in contention to win that race. He was in contention to win on older tires relative to the rest of the field. And anecdotally, this fact floored the Penske drivers. Uh, both Ryan Blaney and Joey Logano mentioned this after the race. Uh, Logano actually said in his, in his, uh, post-race presser that Blaney ran down Elliott, caught him and passed him. And at the rate he did that, even if Blaney made mistakes, he still should have driven away. And I'm going to quote Logano here. 
That's where the nine is better than everybody right now. He does not fall off. His tires hanging on longer than everyone's. No one is even close to what he has after 10 laps. And boy, you think about that. You think about how um, this race ended last year. It there's going to be spins. I mean, folks are going to get in the grass. NASCAR might not throw the caution. And that long final stage plays into what Chase Elliott does really well. His competitors know it. And yeah, until we see otherwise, I would tread lightly in picking <laughs> against him because he's clearly, he, he is thought of as the favorite among those competing against them. Yeah, when they say you should listen, I guess that's what we're saying. Don't listen to us. Listen to his competitors. Um, yeah. uh, win pick. I hate to say it might be easy, but maybe that is an easy an easy pick. Chase Elliott, David. It's our favorite moment of the show. Our contrarian performers. Last week I picked Corey LaJoy, and I think that worked out. If you were a fantasy player, or a, if you bet on him to get a top ten or so, I, th- I think that worked out. So we've gone from from our contrarian contenders. We're calling them contrarian performers. I'll go first on this one, David. Um, I tried to dig a little deep here for somebody, and I'm going with Chris Busher. Uh, if you look at last year, if you look at the point scores, right, how many points they scored at road courses. There was only the two last year, Daytona and uh, Charlotte Rovals. But if, he was nearly a top 10 point scorer, and he had a top five, I believe, at the Daytona road course last year. So why not? I mean, we're going for contrarian performers. If you're doing your NASCAR fantasy live lineup and you want, you're thinking, when am I ever going to start Chris Busher? Maybe this is the weekend to do it. So I'm telling you to consider him because, uh, he had a good year last year on the two road courses in terms of points scored. So maybe he has another good performance. He is my contrarian performer, David. Hmm. Okay. Uh, I think I will, I will rebuttal that. With Ross Chastain, I spoke a little about this on our return episode this season, but Chastain across the last two years, and this dates back to 2019, actually had the best surplus passing value among all cup drivers, regardless of sample size on the road courses. He's never won a road race at any national level. And when he put up those big passing numbers two years ago, he did so against backmarker cars. He was in a backmarker car, um, but he still did it. So I'm curious to see how this translates to uh, the second or third tier of the running group in the Cup Series. On top of that, I'd like to point out Chip Ganassi Racing has a decent road course program. They made tremendous inroads with Kyle Larson when he was there. Alan, Kyle Larson has eight career poles. Three of them came at Sonoma. And if only for a lap, the Ganassi program has road course speed. So I can envision a Chastain performance that is a little surprising. All right, he can continue a hot start to the season, Ross Chastain, potentially, if David's contrarian performer pick comes through. I have Chris Busher, you have Ross Chastain. We'll see how they do at the Daytona Road Course. 
Another good show, David. Don't forget we are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Luminary, and TuneIn. We're available no matter your device. Our entire back catalog of episodes is available for free at posregpod.com. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. That kind of stuff, it just helps spread the word. It helps us tremendously. We, of course, notice, and it is so appreciated. If you have any questions, we'd love to hear them. You guys ask such smart questions. Reach out to us on Twitter at posregpod, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. David, you're always working hard. You got another gig last week. What are you working on this week? Uh, no new gigs, I guess. I, I hope this isn't the David announces a job segment. But uh, <laughs> this week on NBC Sports, uh, the Big Thursday column will be on Martin Truex detailing his road course excellence over the years. Uh, I will also have a Daytona road course race preview Sunday morning. So keep your eyes peeled for uh, for both of those. You can follow me on Twitter at David Smith MA uh, or join my mailing list by going to motorsportsanalytics.com. I will send you the article to your email inbox for free. Do all of those things. You will be a smarter racing fan. Uh, follow me at Alan Kavana on Twitter. Follow my YouTube page, trying to get that up and going and uh, getting some good feedback there. Alan Kavana Media uh, on on the YouTube, uh, having fun learning that. Also, NASCAR Fantasy Live players, if you're listening to this, you are a NASCAR fan, uh, deeply rooted, and I assume you play NASCAR Fantasy. So I'm your guy over at NASCAR, the Fantasy Live League. Uh, that's been fun. Myself and co-host Amy Long will bring bring you some some good advice for your starting lineups this weekend. So uh, make sure you follow on over there. And uh, yeah, just keep plugging to me over at Twitter at Alan Kavana. It's, it's, it's nice to still be sticking around. So uh, another good episode. I hope you learned a lot. For David Smith, I'm Alan Kavana. This is Positive Regression. We'll see you next week. Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.